Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting and loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com live. and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he's building a commander deck with all dogs in it, like Mowu and Paco and Sarulf. It's Matt Morgan. So Joey, you know how Rixmethy's The Slumbering Isle greets Rexiel the Risen Deep whenever they hang out. <laughs> I would love to know how. They just say, hey, what's cracking? <laughs> In retrospect, how did I not see that coming? You, That's you missed a really low-hanging fruit one right there. It was it despite was the fact that they're, they're super, both underwater, and yet the <laughs> super shallow water type of joke that one was. It went right over my head, even though it's underwater. How uh, did it do that? It's, it wasn't a very deep pool of jokes for these krakens, but uh, you know, I do what I can. Anyway, up next, he saw that Matt has made an all dogs deck, and so he decided to throw an old stick fingers over there because he wanted to play fetch. It's Dana Roach. Uh, why are elevator jokes the best form of humor? Uh, they they just have know, so many you... levels. I did that joke like two years ago. <laughs> I am well, mad at you. So I'm I, sorry to push your buttons, Matt. <laughs> ah! Oh, Matt, uh, come on. That was that was I didn't terrific. think you would go down that low on that one though. <laughs> We're gonna move on. What a weird intro this is. Basement has been. dwelling Listeners. humor that Dana. <laughs> we appreciate everyone so much. <laughs> Let's actually finish these intros. You guys are terrific. Anyway, this is the EDH Recast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we'd like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Dana, can you tell us what it is that we're talking about in this week's episode? We're going to talk about decks that we de-optimized, that we didn't make better, but instead made worse. <laughs> 
why in the world would we have done such a thing? Yeah, no, this is going to be a very interesting topic, but there are some decks that we tuned and tuned and tuned, and then after playing with them and after thinking on it for a while, we detuned and detuned, and we kind of want to talk about that and share some of our experiences about why that would be the case. It should be a whole bunch of fun. Real quick, before we get into our main topic, I want to pause and thank Josh Lequai and the folks at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast and making it look as spiffy as it does, and of course, we want to thank our sponsors for the show, too. The EDH RecCast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player. They're like having an enchantment saga that hits a third chapter and flips <laughs> over into another different saga. Oh, what? Just go over to EDH Rec and click on the card in question and choose the vendor link down below. Doing so supports both the site and the show. If you would prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDHRETCAST. We have patron tiers of all sorts of levels, and it's just a great way to get some perks for yourself while supporting the show at the same time. It's great whether you want to join the Discord community, you want to look at all the historic challenges stats that we've done over the course of the show. We have all that and more over at patreon.com slash EDHRETCAST. And we even have that always popular tier where we just give shout outs to people just for signing up, just for supporting us. So this week we are going to give a very special shout out to Toby Corner. So Toby, uh, I hope when you were a kid, you didn't get sent to the Toby Corner. Whenever you got in trouble, you're just Toby Corner. Um, that's that's the best I can do right there. Oh, come on. We're in Toby's Corner. Like, I, <laughs> that's how I would say it. <laughs> well, yes, yes. I, Toby, we are in your corner. Um, so thank you for <laughs> thank you for being in our corner. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I'm, I'm sure, Toby, you've never heard that joke before, but we appreciate you, even <laughs> if we're making far too much of a meal out of this joke. Let's get to our main topic, you guys. Let's get into it. We are talking about decks that we intentionally de-optimized. And I think this is probably to an extent, like an experience that a lot of players have actually had. Like we've all had those experiences, I think. Yeah, we tune up a deck, we tune up a deck, we tune, 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 because it is a lot of fun to engage with decks in that type of brewing process. And then you play it and the deck stomps. It's great. It does so well that you don't like it. <laughs> it does so well that you actually hate it. It does too much and it isn't as much fun as you thought it would be because of the way that it worked. And so therefore you kind of de-escalate it. You scale things back to help craft a gaming experience that the whole table will enjoy. Um, you know, actually really quick, Dana, I want to ask because I feel like I get stomped by you a whole lot. Is this an, an experience that you, you have very frequently? Are you detuning your decks because of how often you just totally demolish me? Like, I just, um, I think, yeah, I, it's one of those things. I, I, I'm like the swordsman in the princess bride where I kind of have to fight left-handed, I think, just to make <laughs> sure we have kind of an even match. Um, no, <laughs> um, yeah, like it, it's complicated, particularly as a content creator, we, I think, are all much more engaged with the game than most people. Um, and as a result, it's very easy for us to overtune decks just because we spend way more time thinking about this than people who mm. aren't, you know, recording shows weekly and writing articles <laughs> and, and, and streaming about Commander. Um, so it, it's very easy to overtune decks, um, even if you're, you know, trying to not do that if, when you're a content creator for sure. So, yes, I, it's something that I've done a lot of the last year or two, definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I, I <laughs> I also, I appreciate, I was attempting the self-deprecation humor. It is true that you always taunt me, but I want to make it clear that I do find the games that I play against Dana to be very fun and not very uh, unmatched or evenly sided. I like um, to give and, you a chance, like I just, you know, like dangle that that sense of that you can win the game in front of you before I pull it away. So yeah, I think I, <laughs> it's fair. 
I, I, my instinct here is to ask Matt for help because Dean is <laughs> digging too much into this joke, but I am also the cause of my own frustrations. I started this joke, so. Yeah, you, you, um, you did give him the, the gateway to do that. So. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and, and also, real quick, before we do uh, dive too far into this episode, we should throw out the caveat for sure that, of course, higher power EDH is an incredibly rewarding experience for tons of folks out there. And this episode... Is just going to be uh, one where we're exploring basically just our own social gaming experiences and uh, how we've navigated the different ways that we want to make resonant game uh, gameplay for our opponents at that level. So this is just you know we're we're not talking about broad concepts anything more than just here are some of our personal experiences that we wanted to share. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, mm -hmm. and, and also to folks who listen to the Commander Sphere podcast with Rachel Weeks and Dan Sheehan, this type of episode might also fall into what they've dubbed the lasagna tier of EDH gameplay, which is just this goofy fun for the whole table kind of thing. And that's basically what we kind of want to get into. What are some experiences about how we found our way to lasagna tier? Because sometimes it can be a little bit tricky. Well, I was kind of joking talking about um, as a content creator having to watch your decks, but I kind of also wasn't joking. Um, that is a thing you have to be cautious about when you're someone who spends a whole lot of time playing EDH, thinking about EDH, writing and talking about it. Um, the, the things you do with your decks make them function in a way that maybe the average player's deck doesn't do. It's not even just about specific cards or category of cards. I think we're going to talk about that when we when we move on here, but it's not even just about that. I think you could take a deck that I brewed and take a similar deck from somebody else that isn't as engaged as I am and just kind of look at those cards and the decks would look to be on a similar power level. But they're probably not. I, I would dare say more often than not, the amount of time I've spent brewing that deck, tweaking it, tinkering with it has made those pieces work together in a way that really isn't apparent until you play the deck um, when compared to another similar brew. So I, I definitely think like the more engaged you are with a game, the more you have to be cautious about this. And, and Danny, I think you bring up a really good point that um, people who spend more time looking at the game, thinking about the game, they're going to do more digging. They're just going to do more homework. They're going to find more little bits and pieces there. And that's that's fine. But also it's fine to be on the other end of the spectrum too. If you're the For more sure. casual player, yeah. like I think <laughs> of all three of us here, I definitely spend the least amount of time looking up all these intricate synergies and making the the Charlie Kelly murder boards that you do, Dana. Um, I, and like, I don't track my decks. Like I went through, I, like, I made it a personal goal because I haven't updated some of my decks in like a year. Uh, so I made it like a personal goal to make sure like, I'm going to be very intentional this week and I'm going to update all, of, I'm going to update one deck per day until they're all updated with what I'm currently running. And we'll talk about a few examples that I found you know, over the course of this episode, but it's totally fine to be on the opposite side of the spectrum. Some people love updating their decks. That's what they, they want out of this game. But if you're the person just like in, like me, who enjoys having the feeling of this deck is completed, um, not in the Phyrexian way, but in the this deck is finished, <laughs> um, then yeah, that, that is absolutely an amazing place to be too. It's just, this. these are our experiences that we're gonna talk about. Um, if you have different experiences, they're totally valid and that's awesome. It's just, we can't talk about what isn't our own experience. Very much. And especially, you know, sort of um, something that you said there, Dana, kind of resonates with me in something that I know that Matt has hit on before that also just like in whose hands that pile of cards happens to be oh, yeah. like that affects things a lot, too. Like, Matt, I know you've said plenty of times that like if you took an aristocrats deck that one of us had built, for example, you'd be like, <laughs> like it might be a powerful pile of cards for sure. But 
don't have experience piloting it, the pilot's experience matters a whole bunch. Similarly, if you were to hand me like your Miri deck, I'm sure that I would think that all of the cards are very pretty and that a lot of them say attack step, but I wouldn't know how to even time out the things that I want to sequence into those attack steps too. So that also totally matters in terms of like the experience that you have with the deck just as much as the experience that you're seeking with the deck. And by now, I think it's probably time that we actually get into some specific examples. So let's start with some broad categories. Matt, I'll pass this off to you. When it comes to things that you have like taken out of decks, ways that you have descaled the power of your decks, are there any broad categories that you hit in order to make that happen? Uh, the first one for me, and this is something that I know Sheldon Mennery has kind of championed for a long time, just since he is kind of the face of the format to a lot of people, uh, but taking tutors out is kind of a big thing that I... I kind of undersold when I first had heard it, but then when I started doing that myself, taking tutors out of decks, I noticed that the format actually tended to be a lot more fun. There was more randomness to it. There, you couldn't count on having, you know, effectively four copies of the best card because you just had that one. So taking tutors out has had actually a very large impact on just how my decks have functioned, but also just my enjoyment, I think, has gone up because I play Commander because I want to get away from the min-maxing of the competitive formats, the competitive 60-card formats, excuse me. So having tutors out of my decks, taking those out slowly but surely, that's been something that I think has, at least on my end, impacted in a positive way how I get to experience my own decks and also for other people too, because, oh, you, you have that one out. Well, you don't have five ways to draw that instantly. <laughs> right. I, I absolutely vibe on that wavelength myself. It is, it just also just kind of feels like, I don't know what's going to happen with my deck. That's the fun part. It's exciting. And it doesn't feel like I'm always searching for the same lines to do the Like, yeah, that's, that's very much a, a thing that resonates with me. Uh, Matt, in my uh, games playing against you, one of those types of effects that I noticed myself taking out were certain types of um, removal that would just like single-handedly demolish a player. So for example, I know that you don't particularly enjoy stuff like Grave because that with all of the aristocrats and sacrifice stuff that I can do, it would prevent my opponents from having a board state. And well, your attack, your, your decks tend to be very attacky or you've got a, a Valduk deck over there and there's just one creature you've got in play, which means that, that that card, it just locks you up from being able to play the game and engaging with the game. And that like, it, it, sure, it's powerful. It's, it's very powerful. There's a reason that those are popular cards, but I don't have fun when you're not having fun, you know? Especially if it's a persistent effect. <laughs> That's kind of the problem, quote unquote, with Grave Pact, is you drop Grave Pact and if you're playing the right deck, you can just maintain that over the course of the entire game or, or at least multiple turns versus, you know, I, the, the comparison I would make, I guess, would probably be Scavenger Grounds where you can stop the graveyard player from doing that big, huge, splashy play that will lose you the game. But that's it. Once you've done that with your scavenger grounds, it's gone and they have a chance to do that again <laughs> versus a Leyline of the Void or something, which is a card I don't run, but that's going to prevent the graveyard player from just playing until they remove Leyline of the Void. So, and I love you for that, Dana. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, so, so that's that. that's where I draw the line. Like I, I, I'm, I'm totally on board. I, I don't mind having those pieces that if I play carefully can stop you from, from going off, but I don't want to stop you from playing. Yeah, that, that's an absolutely great point. Just... There's a difference between kind of those, Joey, I know you've used this analogy before, like those surgical scalpels of very precise ways to deal with problems or just a blanket, very heavy handed way to just stop that from happening altogether. Um, there's a very, very big difference. And I absolutely resonate with that. Yeah. Um, and Danny, you actually 
kind of took the words out of my mouth. Uh, there's a huge difference between scavenging ooze and rest in peace. Uh, there's a huge difference yeah. between a board wipe and addicted Erebos. Uh, all of those things, they effectively kind of do the same thing. Just the magnitude of those is very, very different. Very, very much. Speaking of magnitude, another version of cards that I found myself kind of like taking out of decks too was also just like some of the most egregious or automatic maybe um, end game material. Like I, I stopped having fun with Torment of Hailfire probably after the second or third time I ever cast that card. Like it is super powerful. It is a game ending card, but it's not even that it, you know, I don't know. I just cast it and oh, the game's over. And it kind of gets this ho-hum thing, not even from other people. I'm not even saying that other people that I played against reacted poorly to it. I'm saying that I reacted poorly to it. It was just like, I cast it. This wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. I just got a lot of mana from my Cabal Coffers. So that's another type of thing that I kind of noticed. Like, hmm, when I win the game, I want it to be in a weird, resonant way. I want it to be something that I'll remember and not just the eighth time that I cast a very game-winning spell. Um, So that's another just example on my end. That, that's a perfect card to use for an example of that. I remember when Torment was previewed um, way back during that um, Cat block, and I was I was shocked that that people more people weren't like clamoring for the card. And, <laughs> and, and I picked up multiple copies of the the date stamped pre release foil at the couple pre releases I went to because I'm like, why would I not put this in every black deck? It's amazing. And then I cast it. I'm like, oh, that's what. <laughs> that's why I wouldn't put it in every black deck, because at least for me, it's not very. It's not a very satisfying win to win the game because it's like turn eight and I top deck to torment and the blue player was tapped out. I'm like, oh, well, so I'm just gonna win now. Um, that doesn't. That doesn't feel good to me at least. And, and torment is the perfect example of that, particularly because it doesn't even necessarily win you the game that turn. It might, but it might also just make it so no one else can do anything for four turns after which point you eventually win. (laughs) Right. There's also that. I think that could almost be its own category of just like I win cards or just combos in general. Sure. Uh, I... I have a very like fine line that I'll I'll walk. Um, I took combos out of decks because I was like, okay, I did the thing. Kind of like what you were talking about with Torment of Hailfire, Dana. Like, okay, I did the thing and I don't like this. Uh, That's kind of how a lot of combo finishes for me feel. Uh, So I I still have some decks with a couple, but if I'm running a combo in a deck, I'm not running tutors for it. Or if I'm running tutors, like I make sure there's no like default thing that like is always going to be the best thing. So there's kind of a give and take there. Um, So even if some of my decks still have those, I figure out like, do I want a combo in this deck? And most most time the answer is no. I think I have maybe two combos in any of my decks anymore. I I mean, I think also when it comes to like the combos, like typically you kind of get this attitude that you'll see from folks, especially in online discourses where it comes to just like, oh, all combos are just like boring or something like that. And I'm like, like, no, like combo is certainly also a thing that I've kind of like prevented myself from putting into any of my decks because that's not the way that I want to win. But like, I do still think that there are some decks that can only win with combo, you know, like if you're playing against a mono blue deck, I doubt that it's going to be creating a bunch of 2020s and going to combat with trample, like that kind of thing. Like the combos can still totally be fun. It's just like the ways that the deck arranges them often are a big part of that experience. Yeah, definitely. The the tutor thing Matt brought up really, really resonates both in terms of combo, just tutor usage in general. Um, that's, I don't run many tutors in, in, in decks anymore at all, but the few I do still run are definitely in decks where there isn't an obvious target 
where I'm, you know, more than likely going to just grab a Frexian Arena or grab a board wipe to, stop, to solve a problem. I definitely don't run them in decks where there's that one target that I want to go get every single time. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's a combo piece or or a Torment of Hellfire style win condition, whatever it is, um, the the few decks I do still have tutors. It's only situations where they're where it's open-ended in terms of what I'm going to go grab. Yeah, I really like that. Like, that's what it comes down to for this. A lot of this, what we're talking about, is just shaping varied game experiences from table to table to table. And that's that's a thing that we're clearly all seeking. And this is a, a way to find it. Removing that linearity can be um, especially fun. And, I don't know, embracing the singleton nature. Like, oh, it's 100 cards. Let's find out what happens. Because it's just, uh, it, it allows for those crazy moments to be a bit more prolific within those games. And that's really cool. Yeah. Um, we, oh, yeah, Matt, you had a, you were good. You, that sounded like oh no, I was just I was just agreeing with you because I, I absolutely agree. Like that's <laughs> that's the whole reason I think a, a lot of people play Commander anymore because you want to play singleton format. You don't want every game to play out the exact same way, so you play Commander because there's 99 cards in a deck and there's a million ways for any game to to end. Granted, the yeah, go. game's got to end, so yeah, sometimes you you have to find a, a means to the end, but also like. How are you finding it? What's going on with the adventure to get to that point? There's a lot of questions that happen in between the start and the finish of the game. Oh, no, Matt, we've been over this. Adventure is actually a mechanic from okay, the Belt and Rain. Advent, no, oh. <laughs> I, you've done that joke like eight different times to me on this podcast. I that's, finally got you back with one. That, that's not true. It's only like six. Only like six. It's still six times too many. I gotcha. <laughs> um, let's uh, move on. We talked about some broad categories, and I'm sure that there are several others that uh, folks you know, would fall into some of those big broad categories too. But I actually kind of want to move now to getting into some specifics. So let's actually talk about some of our personal decks and the ways that we de-escalated some of those. Dana, let's, um, let's pass it off to you. Do you have an example of a specific deck that you had tuned up and then that you had tuned back? Um, the, the most glaring example is probably my Glissa the Trader deck. Um, in, in, it, in this case, it isn't even necessarily that it was that powerful, more that it almost gave the perception of power. Um, oh. al- although it was, it was plenty effective too. But like, for example, I, I had multiple tutors in the deck, um, in part because I had just, you know, picked them up for years. Uh, um, and so, you know, at one point in time, I, I, you know, got my first demonic tutor and put it in that deck. And then at some point I picked up a vamp tutor. I'm like, well, it might as well go in that deck. It's my favorite deck. And, you know, Finale of Devastation is a great card. And that, oh. like, well, well, I might as well put that in there as a, it's, it's a win condition and a tutor. And, you know, the Violent Tumor came out, I think, in Modern Horizons 2. And it, it's a logical card to run in that deck. It has Death Touch. It'll go get me an artifact that I can put in my graveyard that will be recorded with Glissa. It, it was a, oh, yeah. you know, smart card to run. And at some point I realized, oh, I've got like seven tutors in this deck. <laughs> um, and, and even though there, there isn't really a combo piece I can go get necessarily with those that, that is a win condition, it still kind of felt bad to vamp tutor, even if I'm just going to get, you know, a, a draw engine or something. And then two turns later, demonic tutor. And then two turns later, you know, cast Sadisi that has a tutor baked into her ability. Like I, I just found it, it felt bad to do that. Um, even if I wasn't necessarily winning the game because I was doing it, although it's definitely plenty powerful just to go get whatever piece you need. So, so those I pulled out of that deck, um, and that definitely like ratchets that power back. And there were also a couple cards in there that I picked up early on in Commander's Lifecycle, Yogma's Will being one. 
that is considered a crazy broken card in older formats. But when I got it six years ago, it was kind of a glorified regrowth and it was a $15 card. It wasn't that expensive. <laughs> I'd use it to like get back one land out of my graveyard and recast that removal spell or something. And that was it. But as time has passed, that card has gotten scarier and scarier in, in terms of perception, even though what I was doing with it hasn't changed. Right. So I also, I also didn't want to run that. Don't, not that it's not a strong card because it totally is, but, um, that's one I pulled out too because it just like people didn't necessarily like seeing that card in a deck either. So that's another one I've pulled. So, this, so there's been in the last year alone, I've probably made eight to 10 cuts from that, that particular deck for, for more or less for power reasons. Well, and Dana, I think that deck and just a lot of the changes you made to the deck fall in line with something you mentioned a few episodes ago. When you talk about you play a commander deck and make sure that you pick the commander that can handle the heat that the rest of the deck mm -hmm. kind of generates for itself. Mm. Those are a lot of signpost cards that a lot of people associate with very high power. Yes. Um, especially like Yawgmoth's Will. That card, it's kind of known for being insanely powerful. Mm -hmm. And so taking that out to kind of take some heat off yourself, like... Yes, you maybe lose a little bit of functionality points, but then the political and social aspect of the game, you actually gain some some better points there. So yeah, you, you might lose a little bit, but in the long run, you're generating less attention towards yourself because people don't see you playing this $200 card. That's a real good point for sure. I, I totally love that. There, there's one other thing that I noticed in what you were describing with the first ones of the uh, the different tutors and stuff that you were like Violent Tumor and, and those friends. like what you mentioned there was how gradual this process is. And that I think is going to be one of my biggest takeaways for this episode is that this is a thing that can sneak up on you. Like making a conscious decision to increase the power of your deck, that is sometimes a way that you go about the brewing experience. But often a way that you go about the brewing experience is that, you know, as sets have gone by, you have gotten some slightly better cards and then some more slightly better cards. Like, Dana, you mentioned cards, different tutors from all across many different years of playing this game. And then you realized after a couple, after after a while, just like, oh, there's seven tutors in here. I didn't even, I didn't even mean to do that. It just, it just happened. I just saw those and I put them in. Um, so like, yeah, this is the kind of thing that can really sneak up on you. And it kind of takes a, a hard reset moment to be like, oh, like this whole category might be, I've gone overboard. It might be this whole thing that I have to uh, really in interrogate whether I, I do want all of these, even though all of those changes were subtle and took place over a very long time. Well, and, and it's not even necessarily the cards in question, although sometimes it can be, but like it's it's possible you have a deck that has a demonic tutor in it and what you're fetching with that demonic tutor maybe hasn't changed at all but over the course of three or four years the rest of the deck around it has gotten stronger you know you were once running Tormont's crypt for your piece of graveyard hate and then mm -hmm. soul guide lantern came out which is probably better most cases so you upgraded to that and then the lantern of the lost came out and in some of your decks not all of them, but some of them, Lantern's better than Soul Guide. <laughs> so you've switched Soul Guide out for Lantern of the Lost. So, you know, there's just, there, there's changes. And if you multiply that across a dozen different cards or more, your deck as a whole make it more powerful, um, even if that particular tutor hasn't changed anything. So by removing the tutor, you maybe ratchet that power level of the whole deck back because of the other cards around it. 
I, I, I like your point. I wish you didn't have to invoke graveyard exile effects <laughs> yeah. uh, to make the point because my necromantic card is a little that's bit fair, sad about um, if, if it's all right, I'd like to move to an example here for me because just as much as this can be an incremental process that you don't notice, like suddenly your deck is more powerful than you realized it was just because of like multiple different cards coming out over time. The other version can also be true when you're trying to de-escalate a deck. And I'm going to use my Yannette Cryptic Sovereign deck as an example here. Yannette is the Esper Sphinx, the five mana 3-5 with Vigilance and Menace and awesome just flying. I love her. When she attacks, she flips the top card of your library. And if it's an odd mana cost, then you can play it for free. Otherwise, it goes to your hand. Beautiful effect. I love it. And when I first built that deck... Y'all know that I couldn't help myself. The things I put into it were like the expropriates and the void winners, these nine mana spells that were so incredibly amazing. And to make sure that I got those cards on the top of the deck, I also played stuff like Vampiric Tutor, which would take any card from my deck and put it right on top so that Unit could free play it. And I, I think when I built the deck, kind of thought that it would be such a long shot to ever make this work that, you know, going a bit extra, going a bit harder in the paint with this would probably be the way to go. Mm. No, <laughs> um, I just didn't really like it. Um, and I thought th th this was a, a deck that I had to kind of peel apart in many different ways. And it's a thing that I've only recently done, like as soon as like two weeks ago is a, I'm still dealing with the power level of this deck. It might be kind of an inspiration behind why this episode is happening even. Like, I initially took out the tutors and thought that I was fine, but I kept stuff like my Elish Norns or the Expropriate. And after many other times playing it, no, those cards were still also just not the experience that I wanted. So then I removed those as well. And even after that point, I still wasn't having as much fun with the deck as I wanted to. So what did I do? I took out not just the tutors that I'd done, not just the big egregious odd mana cards that I'd already taken out and all of the, you know, 13 mana Emrakuls in those. Not only did I do that, I also just kind of made the deck worse in a lot of ways to make it funnier. I took out a lot more of the support pieces that it would need and just started adding random seven drops because that's what I want from this. You know, goodbye smothering tithes, goodbye protective spells, goodbye counter spells. Instead here, I'm gonna flip a grave endeavor. Do my opponents know what that card does? No, but it's seven mana and they've probably never seen it before and that's gonna be more fun. That is actually the experience I've been wanting from this deck. And it took me just as many years to untune that deck to a place where I finally actually feel happier about what it's doing because I wanted to embrace that randomness and variance. So sometimes, I guess just what I want to say is that it is hard to detune deck sometimes because you think you've done it and maybe it didn't actually hit the right note for you yet. And Jason All too kind of helped form the show here over at from Brainstorm Brewery. He's mentioned a lot of times on social media, on his own podcast, how a lot of times it's harder to take a powerful deck and, and power it down a lot of times it's easier just to start a new deck. And so this is just, a, it's a hard <laughs> process. And like, I, I, yeah, yeah it, it is kind of silly to think about, but like, there's a lot of truth that like, this is a hard process. Uh, and anybody who's tried to lower the power level, you, everybody's always thinking in this mindset of, well, I need to optimize, I need to optimize. But having the reverse mindset of that, like you're completely shifting gears. And it's a very hard thing to, to navigate because you also don't know is this card that I'm throwing in instead, is this accidentally going to be better in some situations? Right. Well, and, and here's especially another, there's sort of a cyclical nature to some of this stuff too. When I had Yannette as, you know, big and brassy as she was going to be, flipping these huge nine drops that were, you know, void winner prevents my opponents from casting a bunch of spells. Like when folks know that that is a capability of the deck, they will come harder for Yannette and try to, you know, get rid of her faster. Hence the reason why I put counter spells into this deck and why I felt I needed to protect her a whole lot. But that actually affects the density of how many seven drops or nine drops I can even fit into the deck in the first place. So 
it again goes back to that point that you made, Matt, about the reputation that the commander has and can your deck actually take that or not. And I think I had kind of like convinced myself when it came to this deck why I should increase its power a little bit more because Yannette's never going to stay in play. So I got to protect it even more. I got to play these fancy cards. I have to make it so that when she does get an attack off the top of the deck, that it's really worthwhile because she's probably not going to get many attacks because people keep trying to remove her. And if I just sort of like scale back each of those individual ingredients it did happen over time, but like that will change the way that Yannette is viewed by other people. So yeah, I just, again, goes back to that point you made. I absolutely love it. So I, I have an example here too for everybody. Mine's kind of along the same lines as Dana though, where I, I just had this deck that had a lot of reputational cards, kind of like not quite Yawgmoth's will, but definitely had the, the demonic tutor, had a lot of just sometimes problematic cards in there. Uh, so my Tesa Karlov deck was one that uh, it, at one point in time, it was fairly tuned. There was probably five or six tutor effects in there. There was a lot of, of powerful cards. There's a smothering tithe and all that. And I just eventually kind of got to the point where I, I don't, I looked at the deck and, and A, Aristocrats just isn't my style, but B, I just didn't recognize like what I was trying to do with the deck originally. Oh. And so I ended up taking out a lot of the, the tutors because it, it turned into the kind of this toolbox uh, but there was like four combo pieces in there, but they were very, very specific combos. So I kind of redid and reshaped the deck a couple of years ago, taking out a lot of those things that were at one point what I thought the deck was supposed to be doing. So, yeah, it was it was kind of scattered. And so I focused in a little bit more, but also a, kind of a, a funny recent story when I was going through and updating the deck for the first time in 10 months online. So there's that for you. Uh, <laughs> But I, I was going through and I noticed when I put all the cards back into Moxfield, uh, the, the deck had 101 cards in there. And I just looked at the deck list and instantly said, yep, Dictator Robos, getting out of there. I just, <laughs> it was just such a snap decision for me. It was so easy because that's just a card that, Joey, like you mentioned earlier, it's just not a fun card for me to play with or against. I don't like the positions it puts it in. And I think it kind of restricts the amount of people that you can play the deck against. Because especially if you're playing with some newer players that just combat damage is kind of what they default to, it locks a lot of people out like you had pointed out. And so that's just a card I never felt good about playing. And so I was, yep, yeah. just get that out of there. That was the easiest cut I think I've ever made in my life. I feel awkward playing against a Voltron deck and I've got a persistent sacrifice, make them yeah. think they can never keep their commander play. It's just like, mm, I actually want you to be able to do the thing. What I want from a game of EDH is that you get to do the thing and also I get to do the thing and that me doing the thing is just a little bit better than you doing the thing. Like that's really what I'm after. I want you to be able to do it. So I don't want to stop you from being able to like play the, the magic game. And, and Matt, I really love what you said there about it kind of like the deck became a new almost identity and it became too aristocracy for you when I know personally like the things that had initially drawn you to Tesa Karlov in the first place were the weird death triggers that her ability would allow you to double like making four worms off of a dying worm coil engine instead of you know a whole bunch of blood artist effects like the blood artist effect is not necessarily the thing that drew you to it what you wanted to do was have a bunch of really weird stuff happen in terms of death triggers yeah I I wanted I wanted Reliquary Monk right. to be blowing up everybody's stuff. I wanted Archon of Justice to be getting doubled and all that. Like those were the type of effects that I wanted to build the deck with. And so when I realized, oh man, I have every single Blood Artist effect in here. What am, 
who have I become? And I didn't want to become that necromancer that that Joey you are. Um, but the, everybody gets to pick their own commanders. Like, like we talked about a few episodes ago too. The commander picks you, and and there was a reason that Tasa picked me, and it wasn't to do the typical aristocrat strategy. And, and especially, I think it's very important to note here that while we're talking, like some of those cards that we just named, like I don't think Reliquary Monk even shows up on Tasa Karlov's EDH rec page. Oh, absolutely not. But get out of here. Archon of Justice has that used to be one of Tasa's like top high synergy cards. Now it's showing up in nearly thirty four percent of Tasa decks or uh, Worm Coil Engine. Granted, this is an expensive card, so that could certainly be playing a factor here. But Worm Coil Engine only shows up in 16% of Tasa decks. Like, I dare say this is not just a thing that affects you, Matt. It affects a whole lot of players. Like, as we learn more about the decks, as we get to play more of them, we figure out more of how it can function. And some of the big fun stuff that attracted us to those commanders in the first place kind of have to make room for, like, the efficiency that allows the deck to function in the first place and makes it a little bit more reliable. But you're right that that can sometimes have the effect of causing the deck's identity to change a little bit in ways that maybe you didn't want it to and in ways that take a lot of years before you even notice how much has become different. Yeah, that deck definitely had the feeling of I thought I was supposed to be running all the copies of Fleshbag Marauder effects, all the blood artist (laughs) effects. And before I knew it, that was almost 10 or more slots that were taken up to cards I thought I was supposed to be playing when really that wasn't why I wanted to build the deck to begin with. And I had taken out all these cards that I thought were super fun before that were still powerful. Like it's not that Ashen Rider has suddenly (laughs) become not good, but it's just, it was something that I cut along the way for efficiency sake. And I was like, well, no, I want to play Ashen Rider. That's why I built an Orzhov deck. (laughs) So yeah, that that, that was definitely a conversation that I've had with my Tasa Karlov deck of, I, I got away from the identity that originally made me want to build Tasa Karlov in the first place. Yeah. Man, so many lessons from this. I'm really, really digging it. And we've got some other uh, categories here that we also want to explore, including maybe, you know, some talk about the decks that we haven't de-optimized and why, what makes those categories different, perhaps. But before we get to those, how about we pause real quick and challenge some stats? It's one of our favorite segments here on the podcast because there's so much data on EDHREC, but we don't always agree with that. Sometimes I think that cards are over or underplayed. So we love to challenge those statistics. Dana, would you mind starting us off this week? What's your challenge? Um, my challenge is for a card, um, since we just are, are in the middle of a revisiting Kamigawa, it's from the first Kamigawa block, um, Manamo School at Water's Edge. Hmm. And it's a legendary land. You can tap for a blue or you can spend a blue and tap it to untap target legendary permanent. Um, it is in about 16,000 decks in EDH rack, but they're almost all decks that feature a commander that has a useful tap ability. So Empress Galena that lets you tap to gain control of a legend or Prime Speaker Vanifar that lets you basically do kind of a birthing pod kind of thing. Oh, wow. Where I want to challenge it is just in decks that have a ton of legends. And the reason that's relevant is we did a show about a year ago, um, episode 147 called The Legend Explosion about <laughs> just the sheer amount of legends we've we've gotten in Commander. And in the year that's passed since that show, that hasn't changed. We, we had 160-some <laughs> legends last year. It wouldn't surprise me to see us pass that number this year. As a result, decks just have a ton of legends in the 99. Mm. And looking at a couple of my decks that happen to be blue, I have two lists where half of the creatures are legendary creatures. Ooh. Um, so 
in a deck like that, Manamo just gives you a way to give your give one creature pseudo vigilance, or at the very least, it gives you a combat trick. So when someone swings in and thinks you're you're defenseless, just untap that big beater, and you now have a blocker that, at the very least, will maybe save you from taking damage, but may actually kill someone's creature, and your creature will survive. There's just no downside to it. It doesn't come into play tapped. It makes blue mana. So short of a blood moon kind of effect. The opportunity cost is basically zero, and in a lot of decks, it grants a decent bit of utility, um, and I think it should probably see more play in, in decks, particularly ones that have just accidentally accumulated, you know, four, five, six, ten, twelve, whatever, <laughs> legends just in the 99. Talk about things that change over time, over the years, yes. like suddenly you don't even realize it, but the density of legends in your deck has gone from... Two to twenty, <laughs> just like, right. yeah. <laughs> exactly. I feel that that's a really cool pick. Um, I'll move to my challenge now, and I have a weird challenge for Umbris Fear Manifest. So Umbris is that obnoxiously big five mana Demir Nightmare Horror Commander. On his card, he's just a one one. But the thing is, he gets plus one plus one for each card your opponents own in exile, and that gets very quickly very very like that's just so big because whenever umbris or another nightmare or horror enters the battlefield under your control you can have target opponent exile cards from the top of the library until they hit a land and so you know a lot of stuff goes to exile very very quickly and a big factor that also helps umbris out with this is constantly exiling other players graveyards you know dana i think you had mentioned some of those lanterns earlier that exile everyone's graveyard relic of progenitus that's another one exile everyone's graveyard that is a con Constant feature in Umbris's uh, deck strategy to always keep those graveyards empty, which is really sad for necromancers like me, but also that just makes your commander like a 40-40 or a 60-60 or a 140-140, which I have seen and which was too much, but it was incredible. The thing is, the, th the thing that makes it kind of awkward, I guess, is just that like in Umbris's average deck data, those egg graveyard exile, those mass graveyard exile effects, there's like eight or nine of them in Umbris's average deck, which makes it awkward when you see that Consuming Aberration, a five mana star star horror creature, is showing up in 61% of Umbris decks. And Consuming Aberration, its power and toughness are each equal to the number of cards in your opponent's graveyard. And it also has this ability to uh, mill opponents straight to their graveyard whenever you cast a uh, spell, mill them till they hit a land, which feeds its own power, and that's very, very good. But I think that 61% is probably too much, because this card is a direct non-bow, with all of the scavenger groundsies, with all of the lanterns, this card is frequently a 0-0 zero, zero when you try to play it in Umbris because the entire deck is built to constantly exile everyone's stuff and to keep their graveyards empty basically all of the time. So this is usually just a 5-mana zero, 0-0 zero in the deck, and I think that that deserves a little more scrutiny than it seems to currently be getting. So sorry, Umbris, but if you're going to exile my graveyard, then I'm going to challenge one of your favorite horrors here. Well, Joey, speaking of horrors, I actually have a challenge from a listener this week that is for a certain slug horror that recently came out. So uh, this week we have a challenge uh, that comes from our listener, Blake Dinius, who sent us an email at edhrepcast at gmail.com talking about a, a certain card that's getting pay played in Toxroll the Corrosive deck. So Toxroll is that new uh, return to Innistrad uh, three, uh, not Boogaloo, but whatever the, the third one is. <laughs> 
I just got what you were doing there. I'm sorry. That's very funny. Okay. Yeah, I tried. I tried. Um, so, but Toxroll is the the slug horror. That's the big seven 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 drop mono black. Or excuse me, Demir. There is a there's blue in the activated ability. Um, but it says at the beginning of each end step, put a slime counter on each creature you don't control. Uh, creatures you don't control get minus one minus one for each slime counter on them. And then the key ability here that sparked the challenge was whenever a creature you don't control with a slime counter on it dies, you create a one one black slug creature token. And then you also pay Demir and sacrifice slug to draw a card. So Blake mentioned uh, that in these Toxroll decks that their Gisa, Glorious Resurrector, is currently being played in 46% of those decks. And so Gisa is the four drop that comes from the uh, from the other Innistrad set that we just got back to, uh, is a four four for four, so two in black black. That says if a creature an opponent controls would die, you exile it instead. And at the beginning of your upkeep, put all creature cards exiled with Gisa Glorious Resurrector onto the battlefield under your control, and they gain decayed. So Blake points out that Toxel's last ability requires a creature you don't control with a slime counter on it to actually die. And Geese's first ability says that they don't die, they get exiled instead because it is a replacement effect. Uh, this is a really good catch because, as Blake points out, like, yes, it's cool that you can resurrect all these creatures and get them back on your side, but then you become the controller of the creature and you don't get the benefit of Toxel's last ability, meaning mm -hmm. you don't get any slugs. But there is a little bit of a non-bow there, and I do think that's a very good catch because a lot of people get very excited about cards that come out in subsequent sets and they forget about some of these little anti-synergies that are going on there so if you're playing a tox roll deck that needs a lot of creatures to be dying in order to get those slugs then gisa probably isn't the card that you want to be playing all the time now that isn't to say that some decks don't want there but man almost half the decks are playing gisa glorious resurrector and i do think that's a very good catch if you need those dies triggers then gisa glorious resurrector is probably not the card you want to be slotting into your tox roll decks so good catch out there blake um, this is a really good pick i really like that i especially like you know that's kind of a not only is it a non-bow but it's also kind of an interesting lesson about like are these cards being played together because of their proximity in recent sets that's very very interesting and Matt, I kind of want to ask, like, it's a big slug, right? And slugs are notoriously really slow. So do you think that Toxril talks real slow? No. I mean, I was I was going to make the fast. joke that that slugs are just homeless snails. <laughs> How do you manage to one up me every time there's one of these? I, I will. Never it, it, it is my gift. It is my curse. <laughs> very, very true. Uh, all right, let's move back into our topic. And for contrast, I kind of want to, I guess I kind of want to flip the script a little bit in terms of what we've been talking about, because we mentioned some decks that we specifically intentionally de-escalated. But now I kind of want to ask if there are any decks that we have that we intentionally, <laughs> I guess actually, they don't ever need to be de-optimized like decks that we feel aren't necessarily in danger of reaching that point and what any reasons for that might be um dana let's throw it to you do you have any commander decks of yours that you don't think they're as at risk as the glissa deck that you mentioned earlier or falling into any of those pitfalls that we we mentioned we didn't want to get into take it away man um sure i, I think definitely most of my decks have some kind of a a speed bump just baked into them based on how i brew um i, I almost always put some sort of self-imposed set of rules or restrictions on all of my decks. Um, I have one deck that doesn't have any enchantments. I have one with no artifacts. I have one that doesn't have any non-permanent spells. I have one with no creatures outside the command zone. Oh, wow. Um, my, my two 
true tribal decks don't run anything that isn't part of the tribe. So there's no, you know, Sarkura tribe elder for ramp in a deck that isn't running snake druids or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> right. I have a blue deck that intentionally has no counter spells. Um, I, I tend to, in general, just like not run planeswalkers or creatures in any of my decks that don't fit the specific theme of the deck. I've never cast a Sun Titan in a game of EDH before because I have no decks where Sun Titan fits whatever the theme of the deck is. Um, so so right, that right there kind of bakes some kind of a cap into all of my decks. Um, you know, the, the one that jumps out at me probably the most, I, I've recently built an Anax Hardened in the Forge deck. That's the one with no instants or sorceries in it. Mm-hmm. There's probably just a hard cap on a mono red deck that's all permanence. <laughs> like there, it, it's just mm-hmm. a, it's just going to be a creature aggro deck. There's only so much tweaking I can probably do to that deck. So like, even though I am probably going to continue to turn those screws and add new cards and take things out, there's, there's just going to be a ceiling there. So that's one that I think definitely stands out as a deck that is only going to be able to get so good. But I do think, generally speaking, most of my decks do have some kind of a cap because of the the, the rules I've built into how I'm going I'm to play them. Well, we talk about how each, all three of us have kind of rubbed off on the other two when it comes to how we approach the game. Uh, I've made you guys a little more casual about it. And, and Dana, one thing that you definitely have inspired me to do is whenever I apply a theme to a deck, it seems to help give it a, a little more direction with what I want to be doing, but also it helps guide the power level quite a bit too. And that's one thing that I've always appreciated just about your approach to the game is it's not that you're not making powerful interactions and synergies, but you're able to kind of guide everything a little bit clearer than the typical brewing process that I, I know I always went into decks with. So yeah, folks at home, having some sort of idea for it is what what limitations do I want to put on there? What can I help guide the a the creativity, but also the power level? That's always such a helpful step that I'm, I'm so glad that I've been able to learn from you, Dana. Well, thank you. And also, it, it makes things easier. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, I I don't have to look at enchantments for this deck because I'm not running any, so that solves that problem. Uh, now we learned why his secret right, right. is actually laziness is also part of it for sure. I, I love that. So, Matt, do you have decks that fit into one of those themes or is there – what's an example for you then that um, fits this? Don't necessarily have to worry about it getting too big for its britches. What, what's kind of one of those decks for you? Um, I, I think definitely the Alibu Eternal Witness deck or Timeless one, oh. excuse me. Um, that deck – the last time that we played on stream actually, uh, we were having the Rule Zero conversation and, and we were kind of talking about, well, what does this deck do? Oh, my deck does this. And, and everybody's, well, Matt, what deck are you playing? What does it do? And I said, I'm playing my Alibu deck and it does its best. <laughs> and uh, it, and – and it's not that there aren't powerful turns that I can take, you know, once that engine you know gets running, it can certainly do powerful things. But I also feel like that's pretty much all of the whole format. And so <laughs> that deck never really needs to get tuned back at all. Uh, it, it, I do enjoy the powerful things that it's able to do. Just finding some way to give it any sort of consistency. And, and everybody knows in Boros, that's just easy peasy uh, <laughs> to, to give decks any sort of consistency. So yeah, uh, finding ways to kind of tinker around in that space of, I want to be, I want to find ways to get a bunch of tapped artifacts and I, I have my ways that I want to do that. But also how am I going to find, because I have either payoff cards or I have all of these th- ways to tap artifacts, but then I, I don't have a whole lot of ways to find it because I also don't run a bunch of tutors in that. I don't run any tutors in that deck actually. So finding all the uh, the the, uh, the rummaging effects, you know, 
impulse draw, finding ways just to give it consistency is where it struggled. But it's also kind of my one of my favorite power levels, I think, uh, mm-hmm. over the past couple of years is with how good pre-cons have gotten lately. I like the pre-con plus 10 cards that you you maybe tinkered up with. And that's the power level. Like I, I've just, yeah. I love that power level space right now. Uh, because, and I think a lot of people are kind of playing in that too because the pre-con decks have gotten very, very, very smooth, but also the legends in there, even the backup legends, like Alibu wasn't the main face legend for the Lorehold pre-constructed deck. Same as Kyler's Guardian Emissary. <laughs> that Yeah, that, that wasn't the face commander either, but it's still very, very good. And even with 10 cards that you've changed. So yeah, it's, I, I think Alibu is just a very good place for me. I, I really enjoy the deck even when it does struggle because, yeah, it, it doesn't need to be tuned back because like every single deck in the format, it can do powerful things if it gets going, just helping it get its wings. I I appreciate that. And also, like, that Kyler deck. Oof, talk about decks that, oh, that, yeah. that, one's, that one's such a fun power level as well, but it is certainly a different level of scale uh, in terms of their... Definitely, definitely. I think I actually kind of suspected that what you might bring up for uh, this question was actually going to be your Vivictus Asmati the Dire deck, which is you've kind of just bolt and mm-hmm. bolted it to be like, I don't know, the curve starts at four. <laughs> like you don't have a lot of yeah. acceleration or, or stuff like that. You just kind of like, here's a bunch of six drops. Here's a couple of seven drops. Here's a bunch of eight drops. Like it's, it's yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Vivictus is, that definitely qualifies in this category too, where it's just, um, I'm going to start playing six drops eventually. And <laughs> if the game goes on long enough, I'll cast two in one turn, maybe. And yeah, if 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 the game is getting to turn 12 where I'm able to do that, then who knows what's going to happen. But also, yeah, I, I think outside of the Protean Hulk that I have in the deck, which I remember I played that on stream and in chat instantly was like, oh, my gosh, what is he what is he Protean Hulking for? Oh, no. And yeah, exactly. Data. Um, I got a Wood Elves. A <laughs> watch out, a Sylvian Caryatid and a Bird's Paradise. Like that's what I want. I I don't want a combo. I don't feel good about that. Um, I'm just getting value. <laughs> I, I and, and that was the first and last Protean Hulk cast for value in the history of Commander. Uh huh. <laughs> I'm I'm sure that's true. Um, <laughs> sort of um for my example here, one that strikes me is that I've got a Karazikar deck that I don't think is in too much danger of um getting too feisty with the table or causing um you know experiences that i won't enjoy i guess is the way that i'll phrase it karazakar is the rakdos goad commander like when he attacks he can go to your opponent's stuff and that entire deck is just built to make my opponents attack each other and very frequently because of karazakar's draw life uh draw life draw a card and lose a life trigger like i get a bunch of extra card advantage off of this but i'm also like my life total depletes really, really fast. But like, I'm just there to cause a little bit of chaos. And especially Goad is one of those one of those things that like once the game goes down to a one on one, Goad doesn't do a whole lot. Like, I will make opponents attack me, but I better have some defenses set up to make that kind of actually happen. So that is a deck whose power level like literally scales down as the game goes on. But it's just there for a fun time. So I think that's probably my example of a deck that I feel like I can just play it, lean back, and I don't have to worry about it escalating too too hard. When really all that it is doing is just making me have a bit of fun because I'm causing a little bit of mischief and then seeing what happens when my opponents are forced to attack each other. So I think that this is also a thing that can come in with deck construction or pre-con power level, as you mentioned, but also sometimes there are just strategies where it's just like, eh, this can only go so far. Well, we talked about decks that we intentionally have built in a way that probably aren't going to be optimized. Do we have any ones where we didn't de-optimize them, where we were happy with them <laughs> at the kind of higher power level? 
Uh, okay, I really like this question. Um, like, these are the the places where we put all of the really big stuff. Like, we want them to be as powerful as possible, kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. Well, you first. You ask the question. You you should answer the um, question first. Sure. <laughs> the, the the one is probably my recce history of Kamigawa deck. Um, that's one I just haven't worried about the power level on it very much. I do have a a little bit more fast mana in there. That's the only deck that currently has a mana crypt in it. Um, it has, you know, f- fast mana. I wouldn't normally run a wild growth, a utopia sprawl. So it, it's just a little more aggressive than anything else I play. Mm. Um, and I'm okay with that. It, it's going to play at that kind of eight ish, you know, sub EDH power level. Um, it's still a fun deck, but there's just a lot of places I can't bring it out. And I definitely could, could ratchet that back. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with having one or two of my decks playing in that space, too. So that's that's the one for me that over the years, it's definitely crept up in strength. And that's fine. I'm, I'm okay with it being where it's at. I've made no attempt to to rein that one in. Matt, do, should we let him know that he said sub-EDH instead of saying sub-CEDH? I mean, I heard it, but I was, I was just going to let him just... Continue on. Maybe that wasn't actually a, a slip. Maybe he actually is playing like it is it, right. It's, it's, it's that bad. It's still at the <laughs> sub regular EDH it's, level. It's not even not even the uh, the the commanders their command sphere uh, lasagna tier. It's like <laughs> yeah, it's, ricotta it's cheese tier. Yeah, ricotta, it's just ingredients tier. It's actually his <laughs> his, re, his recce deck is actually just ninety nine forests. It's technically a deck, but like why? <laughs> That's awesome, Matt. Do you have an example here of a deck that uh, you specifically didn't deoptimize? Yeah, my my Meriwether Light Duelist deck was, I mean, that's, I think, one of my more powerful decks. Not Maybe not the most powerful. I, th- I still think my Omnath Locus of Rage deck is that. But Meri, it, it, it was a bunch of cards I just, I love playing, and I didn't optimize it either. It was kind of lingering in this, it's it's not quite the, the CEDH, kind of like what you were hinting at, Dana, but it's it's also more powerful than a lot of decks that are floating out there. So I didn't get to make any changes. And, and I think Mary actually got a power level boost when I built my Kyler deck because hmm. I was able to kind of have something that was a little less powerful than Miri. So I got to soup up and I got to put cards back into Miri oh. that I might have felt bad about playing otherwise. So I, I have my my more mid-tier deck and then I have my more powerful deck um, in Selesnya Colors just because I, I mean, I have a brand. I got to stick to it. <laughs> but also I, I was able to put uh, my, my Devoted Druid combo back in there, which was one of my favorite win conditions because even if I wasn't able to stomp over people, I still had some some fallbacks because games got to end, as they say. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, I was able to put cards back in there uh, into my Miri Weatherlight Duelist deck that I, I wasn't really able to play because I wasn't, I didn't like where it was going. But since I have a backup Slesnia deck that doesn't have the combos, doesn't have any tutors, I was able to to fill that in, and and so it was. Yeah, it was it was able to actually kind of get more optimized, but yeah, it, it was never de-optimized either. Just I, I had to be very kind of tempered with the card choices I would put in there. I really like that. Let, like having both of those spaces for you to be either one of the selves that you want mm-hmm. to be for that that gaming experience. Like, yeah, we can go hard in the paint over here, or we can just chill back, relax, and see what happens. Like putting all of those options into another commander deck freed up more of the options for the other one. It allowed it to carve out more of the identity and the power level that you were looking for. I yeah. love that. That is such a good lesson, Matt. Yeah, definitely. That that's exactly what my my thought process was. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think one of the reasons that the the example I'll bring up uh, is the Mimeoplasm. This is my oldest living deck, which probably has something to do with it. Like 
he's, he's my boy. I've like, I, I totally want to soup that one up and give it all of the fancy stuff. But, but that is actually kind of the reason that this is a deck that I have a, like, I'm not going to scale this one back. I could, but I don't really want to, because that is actually the deck where I'm going to put all of my fancy stuff. Like, and that is the, the lesson for me, I think when it comes to stuff that I won't de-optimize, it's like, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to get a survival of the fittest and that's a really expensive card now. Um, but I want to play <laughs> somewhere like I, I want to have a deck that, that plays it or like I did actually open a mana crypt. Well, I want to play it somewhere and, and let's make it here. This is a foot. Let's treat him. Let's, let's give the, t- the big blob ooze with the T-Rex arm. Let's give it more stuff. Um, and, and especially that one now for me is also a deck that has gotten that commander reputation of, yeah, it's going to become a lethal combination that will just like take a player out in exactly one swing. So he'd better be prepared with, you know, the fierce guardian ships and stuff like that to protect him. So I'd better make it, you know, more tuned and tuned and tuned and optimized. Um, but it, it, that was just honestly born, not even from the gameplay experience, but born from the fact that like, I don't know. I just wanted to have a deck where it's like I've treated myself. Like this is where all of my fun stuff goes. This is where I got my fancy version of the soul ring. And so that is a deck that it's just nice to delight in the, the cool treasures that you've accumulated over the game. And that's sort of that expression for me with that deck. And yeah, it's just, it's fun. It's cool. He's got a T-Rex arm. I don't know. I just love him. (laughs) I I love how that's your takeaway from gushing about this deck is he has a (laughs) T-Rex arm. (laughs) A little tiny T-Rex arm. He's very bad at push-ups. No, he doesn't have T-Rex <laughs> arms. He has a just, T-Rex just arm. for an arm. I need this to be understood, Data. It's terrific. Fair, that's fair. So here's a really good question then that I think we all have been maybe pondering a little bit. Everybody at home maybe has as well. But I want to hear everybody else's thoughts on this. Is what's the line between I'm going to descale this deck, I'm going to power it down, and it's not worth the effort, so I'm going to take the deck apart completely. Where oh. do you both fall on this? Because I... It's it's always been a balance, and I, I'm not sure, but I want to hear where you guys are so that maybe it can help guide me moving forward. Well, so so here's a, a I, real example for me that happened in the last 10 days or so. Um, I have a Sagarda Host of Hurons Enchantress deck that I've had for a lot of years. It's one of my oldest decks. It's probably at this point like seven-ish years old, um, and it's it, it was a lot of fun when I first built it, um, but as time has passed, we've gotten more and more Enchantress effects which was great at first, um, but about the time we got Sithis in, we hit a threshold where the deck almost felt too easy to play. Um, number one, Enchantress is kind of difficult to interact with anyway. It's probably the most difficult card type to remove, and when your entire deck is built around that card type, it's kind of a problem. It tends to be a little bit dirtily for one as you're you know, playing in the champion and drawing four cards and, and trying to kind of get that loop going. Um, it's a lot of people are just watching you fiddle with magic cards, which isn't the best thing. <laughs> um, so, so we've gotten a lot of toys that that have amplified that problem. And then right now in in this new Kamigawa set, there's been a bunch of stuff that interacts with enchantments as well. That's that's quite powerful. Um, things like Light Pause Emperor's Voice that is going to let you to drop an enchantment when you play one, or um, that she calls Reign of Truth that lets you you know buff your creatures. There's just a lot of really decent gas here for Enchantress decks. And in looking at my Enchantress deck that I was already a little bit bored of because it felt too easy, I just said, oh, I could, I guess, find room for these cards or I could just stop playing the deck. And I chose to just take the deck apart. I felt like there were so many tools that I didn't know like what a reasonable amount of them to not run was. Where do I draw the line? Mm. Do I just not run some Enchantresses? And why am I choosing to not run the ones I'm running? Um, I just couldn't find like a good middle ground. 
And I just realized that made the deck boring. There was just, it was just too easy to be good. So I quit playing it. So that's a deck I've, I've taken apart rather than detune because I couldn't figure out how to detune it in a logical way. So I just gave up. Interesting. Man, uh, Matt, this is a good question. Um, I don't know if this is a satisfying answer, but it is the only one that's coming to my brain right now. Um, but I'm thinking of a deck that I did take apart, which was Yidris Maelstrom Wielder, who was that amazing four-color non-white cascade deck. And I had actually tried to put a restriction into that deck to make sure that it didn't go too bonkers. Um, I had tried to make it a bit more Voltron. Like the things that I would actually be casting would be things that suit up Yidris so that he can deal a bunch of commander damage. And then as I play more auras and equipment to put onto Yidris, I'll just keep cascading and get extra free value. The thing that I think stands out to me in terms of like why I might have taken apart compared to another deck that I've just detuned, like Yannette that I mentioned earlier. Like those are both commanders that flip stuff off of the top of the deck. The thing that I think makes the difference is like literally the sound I'm hearing in my mind as I'm saying this is when people go, whoa, when I flip a cool seven drop off of the top of the deck with Yannette, even if I did it blind, I did like, I didn't set it up. I didn't brainstorm and put something on top of the deck. I just attacked with Yannette. Let's see what I got. Oh, it was a cool, it was a chromatic orrery. I haven't seen that card played yet. Like, oh, that's so cool. Like that is the sound for me. Yidris was constantly, you know, moving to the next thing and it was efficient. It was very, very efficient, but it was also always going to be the same thing every single time. And no matter what I was putting onto it, the, that level of value is just absolutely busto. But Yannette, it's got that noise. It's got that sound to it of people reacting with joy when they see this crazy thing that happened. My opponents also being happy for me is a very big ingredient in terms of a deck that I think I can salvage and a deck that I can uh, retool versus a deck that I eventually kind of tire of. I think that's my best example. All right, that's fair. I'd love to. I'd love to know about your examples, though. Do you Do you have an answer to this question where you draw that line? Oh, I I scrap decks all the time, or at least I used to. <laughs> okay. Um, I've I've actually taken more decks apart than I have scaled back. Uh, whether it was my Narset Enlightened Master deck, it was my Rafika the Many deck. I've taken a lot of decks apart mm. uh, because well, and one thing you'll notice about those, like those at one point in time at least, were known as fairly powerful commanders for the time. And they were towards the top, and I had all the fast man. I had all the the take a million turns with Narset and win, but they weren't they weren't fun. They they were very repetitive, and there wasn't really changing a Narset deck to being something that's a little more fun to play as a pilot, not even to play against. Um, and so, yeah, my my Narset deck was taken apart. I I used the mana base and built a different Jeskai deck altogether. Uh, my same with my. Uh, my, my, my Rafika the Many deck. I it was a one-trick thing. It was my Slump Buster deck is what we called it just because like, <laughs> if I played it, I was going to knock somebody out really hard, really quick. Uh, but it didn't do it much other than that. And so I was like, hey. it's the same experience every single time. Mm-hmm. There's no variance. Uh, so I've taken a lot of decks like that apart way more often than I have uh, when it comes to just, okay, this deck is too powerful. I need to, to step it back a little bit. Um, I don't do that a whole lot. It's just for me, it's easier to take the deck apart and to rebuild altogether um, and just give it a whole new identity, give it a new commander, give it a new whatever else I'm trying to do. So I've actually, I mean, maybe this is the lazy part of me. Uh, I It takes a lot of work. It's a hard thing to do is to take an existing deck and then actively not make it worse, but make it more enjoyable to play against. It's just hard. And so maybe that's just me being lazy is just, man, I'll just make a new deck. Plus you get to make a new deck. <laughs> I mean, that's also fun. Like if for yeah. real. Yeah. You get to brew all over again. So yeah, that's that. We'll go with that. Yeah. I, I, I just re- reform it into something new. 
Matt is the human equivalent of Perforos, constantly reshaping the landscape, building new structures, and then taking forging, it all away. Forging on. Forging onward. Yeah, these these are interesting. I think what honestly I've learned from this episode is just that there is not an easy answer to these questions. Like even the motivations that we have for descaling different decks, all of those motivations themselves are different, even if the act of descaling those decks is the same. The decks that we have kept as optimized, they're all for different reasons. Like the my biggest takeaway after all of this, honestly, is probably just going to be like, look at how many different ways that we all interface with this game. But also of a main through line, look how important it was for each of us to make sure that our opponents are having just as much fun as we are. And that seems to be, I think, the biggest guiding principle for all of these. Um, and yeah, there's a lot to think about the actual playing of the game and moving all of these things together. It's it's weird. It's tricky. And as we noted, it might take several years and sometimes things will sneak up on you. But it is really rewarding once you are able to key into exactly what it is that you want from all of those commanders. So yeah, I just really appreciate that. Matt, thank you for the lessons that you taught me um, this week. I appreciate it. Thank you. All, for the, all, all the old man wisdom. All of it. And Dana, thank you too. But please stop exiling my graveyards. Thank you. <laughs> I, I've considered what you said. Um, whether or not I internalize it is a different thing. I, I'm, I'm hoping that that is the best lesson that we can internalize. We will see whether it sticks. <laughs> we'll find out next week. Anyway, let's actually call this episode to a close, you guys. If our listeners would like to get in touch with us, fellas, where is it that they can find you? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDHRecast. We have guests on every single week, and it's always a blast to have folks on there. So make sure you tune in for all those fun games. And Dana. You can find me um, once a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. I am writing for both EDH Rec and Commander's Herald. I'm on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach, and you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRecCast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDHRecCast on Facebook and on Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Josh Sequoia and the whole team at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast. And we want to thank our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. And you can visit altersleeves.com slash EDHRecCast for cool, custom EDH Rec sleeves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.